Grumpy Dog, as well as our resident chef, Russ. So be here for that if you're age 50 or older. And then also, typically every single month, they have what's known as the Diamond Excursion. And so just like the word excursion means, they excursion some places to go have a great time of fellowship in great events. They went to Fort Toulouse, they went to a Pioneer Village, they went to museums and things of that nature. And so it's always a great time. And so if you're age 50 or older and you're looking for a group just to have some great camaraderie, great fellowship and a great time with, come visit us at Open Door Baptist Church and we'll get you connected with the Diamond Ministry. If you're looking for something to do Sunday nights at 6 p.m., we'd love to have you join us. What we have going on first is a study, a look into the minor prophets. You see, many people know who Ezekiel, they know Jeremiah, they know Isaiah. We're going to be in James chapter 3, verses number 13 through 18, and we're going to finish up this section. And, uh, but before we get into the verses, I do want to do a recap of where we've been. Now, a lot of times, whenever you get into discussions of theology, people will look at the book of James and really consider the fact that faith without works is dead. And, and if you're a true Christian or if you're a genuine Christian, if you don't have good works, then you're not a genuine Christian. And we've looked at the letter of James in context, in the letter context, the epistle context, as well as in the brighter, brighter, broader scope of things in the Bible context. And realize that is not the case at all. That is not what James is talking about here. There is no contradiction between Paul and James that a lot of people want to levy. So how did we get to that conclusion? Well, first off, we reveal the fact that the audience James is writing to is purely Christians and believers. We see this in chapter 2, verse number 7, where James writes that you're being blas they're blaspheming the worthy name by which you are called. And that worthy name by which they are called is Christians, I would argue, because we also see in 1126 in the book of Acts that they were called Christians first at Antioch. We also see in chapter 1, verse number 3, that it's the trial of your faith. Then the aspect of the word brethren is used multiple times in the letter of James, all reveals the fact that he's writing purely to Christians. Now, moving on from that, we looked at the passages that Christians will suffer trials and temptations. I just recently put a post out there about Michael Todd. I, I used to do a lot of name dropping in the past, and I've really gotten away from that, but this is one that I really couldn't uh, avoid. But you have some pastors, dare I say pastors out there and preachers that preach a very hardcore prosperity gospel, word of faith message, things of that nature. They say God's will for you is health, wealth, and everything else in essence. Well, that is very contrary to scripture. And we saw that these Christians in the book of James were being persecuted for their faith. They had left their homes, their jobs, their families, their synagogues. They're being persecuted to the point of ex, ex, uh, execution. And so this letter is about how do they live their Christian life actively in the midst of sufferings and trials and persecution. So we talked about that. We also revealed the fact that in chapter 1, verse 22 through 24, that a Christian can be a hearer only and not a doer. Because if he's writing to Christians as audience, he says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So he's telling them, some of y'all are just sitting here listening and not applying anything I'm saying. So you're not even doing anything. And if we know they're Christians, then some Christians do have a poor faith. They do have an inactive faith. We also saw that Christians can have what James calls a vain religion or worship conduct. We also read in chapter 2 that Christians can show partiality, and they should not. Remember, the letter of James was written to Christians who were being persecuted for their faith, and one of the aspects we talked about when we got to that section is that they probably lost a lot of financial wealth. And so whenever you have your local assembly and you have a rich person coming in and a poor person coming in, there is probably that trap, which is why he brings this up, that, hey, let's take care of the rich person because they could probably take care of us financially unless, you know, just overlook the poor person and say, here, sit at my footstool type deal. So we talked about that. We also talked about in verse number 13 of chapter 2 that Christians will give an account at the judgment seat of Christ for conduct how we live as a Christian. It's not the fact that, you know, Christians, oh, anybody that believes in free grace teaches a license to sin. You don't need a license to sin as much as you don't need a license to drive a car. But what free grace teaches is the fact that 
Christians that live a sinful life, a worldly life, they're going to give an account at the judgment seat of Christ as far as what they've done with the faith they received. And so we talked a lot about that. There's a difference between the judgment seat and the great white throne judgment. They're two distinct judgments. Then from there, we got into the famous passage, or really, maybe it's an infamous passage because a lot of people abuse this. And we talked about what is it to have a dead faith. There's a lot of people out there will say that if you don't have works, you have a dead faith. And that means you genuinely are not a Christian. We looked at that from a practical aspect in the sense of put yourself in their shoes. They just left everything. They lost their house. They lost their jobs. They lost their friends. They lost their families. Some of them were executed. And now James is saying, because you're not helping the homeless, I don't even think you're a Christian. Well, that's completely divorced from what the letter of James is actually even talking about. And so to have a dead faith doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It means that you have an inactive faith, which is what the entire letter of James is about. How do we live our faith actively in the midst of our trials and struggles? And so we spent probably about three or four weeks on that passage. And then last time we were here, we talked about the fact of using our words and our tongues and how that our tongues that no man can tame. We're told that clear as day in an absolute, no man can tame the tongue. And the fact that we need the spirit to help us control our words. That's why Paul says in the book of Ephesians that we need to be prayed to be filled with the spirit. Not that we need to be prayed so that we can speak in tongues, but that we need to pray so that the spirit can fill us, can, can permeate us so that we make our conduct, our choices, our words, our actions spirit led. So there's a difference there. And so this is where we've came from. Again, James is not talking about someone that's not a Christian or to prove you're a Christian. James is talking about having an active and mature faith in the midst of trials, struggles, and situations you go through. You may have seen this uh, put up uh, on my Facebook page not that long ago, but it's a quote that I believe, you know, through studying this, I was like, hey, this really fits. I think this is very legit. A lot of times within free grace theology, people will say, oh, free grace, oh, you just teach someone can live like the devil and still go to heaven. Well, in essence, our salvation is secured by the blood of Christ and is sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. And unless God breaks that seal, our salvation is secure. I had a message one Wednesday taught the Ma talked about the McNamara fallacy and outliers where we responded to objections to eternal security. Our salvation is sorely solely and only uh, available and made possible because of Jesus Christ. That is also, we are only preserved by Jesus Christ, not based upon our conduct. But what happens within free grace theology in the group is we want to say, oh, a Christian that has a dead faith, they don't need to be resaved, resaved. they need to be discipled. Yeah, that's true, but I think we need to go one step farther than that. A Christian that has a dead faith, a Christian that is not living as if Christ's blood was, you know, if we should look at the blood of Christ as the fact that I'm an unworthy person. I do not merit the blood of Christ, but he loved me so much that because of his blood, I'm saved, sealed, and secured because I have faith in it, right? And because of that, that should motivate us to serve and love Christ to the utmost of our ability. But too many times, Christians, they don't look at the cross that way. They get so enamored and raptured into the world's systems. So they get caught up in climbing the corporate ladder, things like that. And so, yes, within free grace, there's a lot of times people will say, oh, a Christian that has a dead faith, they're living worldly. They don't need to be resaved. They need to be discipled. That's true, but I would go one step farther and say, a Christian with a dead faith, faith also needs to be rebuked. Period. We see this in Scripture in 1 Timothy 5.20, 2 Timothy 4.2, Titus 1.13, and Titus 2.15. That rebuke is a part of discipleship. That if I'm a Christian, thankfully I am, say Matt sees me out there and I'm living like the world, I'm making all sorts of bad decisions, right? Yes, Matt needs to disciple me, but he needs to rebuke me lovingly. Says, Danny, what you're doing, you shouldn't do that. This is what God's Word says and Christ did so much for you. Why are you doing this? I need to be rebuked so that I can change and get into better fellowship with God again. It's not for salvation. It's for fellowship and reconciliation. And so a Christian that has a dead faith 
No, they don't need to be resaved because they never lost their salvation. It doesn't prove they were never saved. What it proves is they need to be rebuked and discipled. And we've talked a lot about that that Wednesday, that McNamara fallacy discussion. And so this is, in essence, the letter of James, what he's talking about. Will? I could see that on that, on that instance, but uh, there, there's going to be instances in which people suffer for each mm-hmm. They may pull away. And what you said, that sort of be rebuked, maybe be reconciled. Reconciled, yep. Yep, and we talked about that in the McNamara fallacy. We talked about what I've labeled hypothetical unicorns. Because people that reject this uh, view, they'll say, oh, you believe a Christian can become a Satanist and worship the devil and still go to heaven. I call them a hypothetical unicorn because if you ask that person, have you ever met somebody like that? They're going to say no. I've never, so they want to build this straw man argument, if you will. And so what happens is in that, in that lesson, we talked about we need to have a discussion with the person. Find out what's going on with that person. Maybe it's not the fact that I just want to live to the world and live like a devil. Maybe it's the fact that I just lost my wife and my kids. I can't reconcile why a good God would allow this to happen. So I started going to the bar. I started drinking. I started... I started going on a downhill path, and I just lost it, went bonkers. Does that mean I was never saved? No. Like Will says, maybe there's something that happened in my life, a tragedy that occurred. And unless we get us away from theological presuppositions and say, oh, you were never saved, so you need to stop that, you say, hey, what happened? You were so on fire for God, and now this is going on. And then you find out I lost my family. Oh, I hurt with you. I'm so sorry, you know. Then you work on what you're saying, Will, reconciliation. And so what it teaches, it teaches to have a discussion with somebody and try to reach them. And so, but I just bring up the rebuke aspect because rebuke is a biblical concept within Christianity and the church. Uh, The only aspect is, in the New Testament, it also says uh, to not rebuke an elder to go ahead and deal with them differently, but other Christians to rebuke for reconciliation. And so all that in the way of introduction, because we haven't been here for a while. But if you haven't seen that McNamara fallacy uh, teaching that we, we did, I'd encourage you to check it out. Eternal security. I thank God that our security is based upon what Christ has did and God's promise and the spirit sealing and not on what I can do, have to, or, or will do in the future. But in way of tonight, I do want to open up for discussion. Who in your life would you consider to be a wise person? Think about it. You know, why, why would you consider so-and-so a wise individual? Thoughts? Anybody in your life? Well, looking at the, uh, the... People you know. People I know. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well, I know that in the past, uh, any time I consider someone wise is when you observe their mm. life. They, you observe the choices they make and the outcomes. Yeah. And um, because... I know that, you know, having uh, having kids, you know, that's one of the things that we always try to teach them is look at, you know, these people, the people you choose to mm-hmm. hang around. You know, yeah. Look at the results and the choices they oh, make. Oh, that's good. You're, getting, you know. you're reading my notes. Well, thanks, Matt. I need a wavelength. Me and Josh didn't have it this morning, but we do, apparently. <laughs> Anybody else? Who is wise in your life and why? No? Will? Yeah, I'm my wife. Yeah. Did you hear that, Sarah? I would have said that in my time here. As a guy, I think you're a person that tends to just do first, think later sometimes. Yeah. I can never trust her. She's always in the word. She thinks a lot about hopefully the energy connection. Yeah. She's more strategic thinking than I am. Even though I like to school to study strategy, she does pretty good or better than I would. Yeah. Okay, excellent. All right, let me ask you this question. How would you actually define wisdom? Never thought about that. How would you define it? If y'all just want me to talk, I could talk. Well, um, knowledge properly applied. Knowledge properly applied. Okay, I like that. Hunter. Knowledge to be able to apply it and do what's right. Uh, know what to do when circumstances come up. Okay, so the ability to know which way to go and what to do in the midst. Okay, anybody else? Yeah. Crystal, is it? Yeah. Um, I would say wisdom, just if I'm thinking about people that I would think are wise. Yeah. I would say 
Mm. Knowledge that came through experience and yeah. Yeah, ex exactly. Yeah, experience, yep, and seeing that, definitely. Jerry. I almost knew a fellow that I went to church with. If you quoted any verse in the Bible, mm -hmm. you quoted one before it and one after. <laughs> okay. To me, he was, and he was, he walked the talk. Okay. He yeah, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. Okay. Up to the day he died. He Wonderful. Good testimony. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Well, let me ask you a final question for right now is, you know, many of us have sought counsel before, asked what should I do, whatever the case is. How do you know if the counsel or the wisdom you get is actually wise? Thoughts? Well, yeah, Drew. Let God be true and every man a liar. So I think okay. you, you take that counsel to the Bible. If it doesn't add up or line up, then it's wrong. Okay, excellent. You know, compare it with Scripture. Uh, Brands, you know, Acts seventeen eleven. You know, they look to see what Paul was saying was true, and same thing with counsel, definitely. Anybody else? Hunter? Um, I think, too, if somebody's talking to you and they're talking about how you feel, feelings, and okay. a lot of uh, just emotion yeah. behind the counsel, then I think it would be very wise. Yes. Teaching you to follow your feelings and your emotions mm. instead of actually just logically thinking about it. Yeah. Okay, definitely. That's good. Yeah. Jerry, yeah, I think it Matt. Also goes back to who, who you choose. It goes back to question number one. Like yeah. Here, if it's someone you know uh, is, a, is a godly person, mm. choices, okay. and you look at the evidence of choices that they their make, life, and you can be pretty sure that they're giving you some, some good counsel okay. whether you choose to follow it or not. Sort of like experience, sort of like what Crystal said too a moment ago as far as looking at their experience and can you trust them? And then line it up with the Bible and not emotions, but truth. Will, or Jerry first, and Will. I'm just going to first. All right, we'll go to Will. No, just kidding. <laughs> I've never had much luck with cancer. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, me and Jerry have had counseling sessions a lot, and he's never had good luck with me. But no, I'm sorry. But, you know, uh, I've been counseled in the military. Of course, being the military. Hey, wall to wall counseling. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well. Okay, so they should know you well, so you don't want to just get it from a stranger? Yeah, and prayerfully yeah. given to. And prayerfully, okay. It could be a good person, but if they give you a snap counsel, yeah. it could be wrong. It's like, hey, uh, you know, there, there's a church in Nebraska that, you know, an interest in me candidating. What should I do? And you're like, oh, go. I'm like, Okay, does Will not like me, or, you know, is that wise? But you're right, you know, go to the Lord in prayer. But, hey, I'll pray with you about that and give you time to ask questions. And a lot of great thoughts, a lot of great thoughts. So what we're going to be looking at tonight is this aspect of wisdom. Let's read James chapter 3, verse 13 through 18. Again, remember, this is in context of suffering and struggles and trials. James writes, Who is a wise man and a dude with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But... If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. You see, most of y'all have mentioned this. It's interesting when you think of the concept of wisdom. Wisdom generally is seen more than it's heard. That it's really seen and rooted in practice and experience. And we're going to sort of break this down. A long time ago, far, far away, in September of 2022, we were on part two of James in September. But in that session, we talked about the why of, whys of our trials. And in that, we looked at, if you were going through a trial, James says, to pray for wisdom. 
We said, okay, I'm going through a trial. Why, why would just knowing something be beneficial? Because there's more to wisdom than just knowledge acquisition. There's an application of wisdom. You see, when you get into Proverbs chapter 2 through 4, I believe it is, it really breaks down the difference between knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. And basically, if I were to sum it up, I would say knowledge is knowing what Scripture has to say. Understanding is discerning Scripture. And then wisdom is applying Scripture. That's how I'd break down the differences based off of Proverbs 2 through 4. In essence, we can know everything there is about Scripture. I can know John 3.16, know what 15 and 17 say all day longer, any verse. That's great knowledge. There's atheists out there that can quote the Bible left, right, up, downs a lot more than I can. They have a knowledge of the Bible. That means nothing. There are people out there that can discern what Scripture says, but they don't do anything with it. They can get counsel and say, okay, this is what God's Word says. Like you were saying, Drew, this is what Scripture says we should do, so this is what you should do. But then if they don't apply it, understanding gets you nowhere. Wisdom is rightly applying the Word of God. And we talked about that when we got to James chapter 1, verse number 5. And so I want to sort of illustrate this with my dad. I asked my dad uh, uh, if he could send me some photos. My dad built a kit car, not like a model, but like a car, right? And he built it from the frame up. Fascinating. 1966 Shelby Cobra. Knowledge is him knowing everything he needs for this car. Knowledge is knowing what steps to take. And so this here talks about parts list. This is just one of so many pages he needed. Front brake, rotors, weight jacks, rear springs, you know, la, 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 la. He knows what he needs. Understanding is, okay, I know what I need. Now, what do I do with it? So now he discerns he needs some help, some of his people. He needs people that are good fabricators. He needs someone to paint the car. He needs someone that can do electrical. So he's like, all right, I have all this knowledge. Now I need to understand what to do with it and how to do it. The wisdom comes in when they collectively take this frame and build that car. Beautiful car. Did that say your mom did the brake lines? My mom's a grease monkey. What? Yep. Man, I'm going to hit her up tonight. Yep. Yep, my mom did brakes and stuff like that. But this is a practical understanding of the difference of knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Because they can have all the knowledge in the world on what to do. They can have all the understanding on what to do with it. But if they never apply that, you're never going to get the car. Never. I rode in that car. That car is so fun. So loud with those huge side pipes. And so this is what James is talking about. We need to, as Christians, apply the word of God to our life. So then the question becomes, well, let me, let me start here first. So a wise Christian, according to James, according to God, who is a wise man? Someone that shows out of a good conscience his works with meekness of wisdom. There is an aspect. If you don't know what the Bible says, you're not wise. If you know what the Bible says, but you don't understand it, you're not wise. If you know what the Bible says and understand what it means, but you don't apply it, you're not wise. You have got to know what Scripture says, understand what Scripture says, and apply what Scripture says to your life to be a wise Christian. This reveals, guess what? There's a lot of unwise Christians in the world. And it goes to prove again, time and time again in the letter of James, James is not talking about how to prove if you're saved or not. He's talking about how can you know if you are a spiritual, mature Christian or if you're in good fellowship with Christ or if you have an active faith or if you're a wise Christian or if you have a dead and active faith or if you're an unwise Christian or if you're an immature Christian. That's what James is about. And so, practically, and this question for all of us, uh, how can you and how can I grow in wisdom in our day-to-day life? What does it look like? We all have different jobs, different situations. So, 
What does it look like knowing the word of God, understanding what it says, and applying it to your life? What does it look like in your life? Any questions, thoughts in your situations or whether working with people and ethical dilemmas we talked about? Okay. Making time to get into Word so we can at least start knowing it, right? And then praying and praying the Spirit would teach and illuminate and just speak to us. You know, anybody else? Any thoughts? Yeah, Crystal. Yeah. Uh, I know that the Bible says a soft answer turned away from the wrath. Uh-huh. And I understand what that means and when to use it. Yeah. And I buy it when I have a mother. Yeah. Yeah. And I've used that time and time and time again. Yeah. And it actually works. And so I have the wisdom yeah. to know that God's word is true. Amen. Yes. That helps with husbands too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're going to get to picture my eye here in a little bit. I actually threw that in here. No, that's perfect. And I do want to add just something to that as well. Because please don't misunderstand what I'm saying in the fact that if we don't apply God's words, you know, we're, yes, we are unwise according to Scripture, but. There is forgiveness, there is growth, there is reconciliation. If we say, you know what, I lost my cool today. I know a soft answer turns away wrath, but I lost it today. God, just forgive me and allow me to prevent myself from doing this again next time. And so every now and then we're, we're going to have slip-ups. As a Christian, we're definitely going to have slip-ups. But if our life, and when James says here, let him show out of a good conversation, what he means by that is your sort of regular conduct in life. It's not just a one-time slip-up. It's like, are you characterized generally by godly traits, by good works and good fruits of the Spirit, things like that? So, definitely. What else? Taylor. Mm-hmm. Um, where I was reading the Bible because I knew it was right, but it was hard for me to understand. Mm. You know, we want to read our Bibles every day. Yeah. If you're not understanding what you're reading, you're not able, then you're not able to apply it. So yep. those steps don't work if you don't understand. Mm-hmm. So knowing the Bible and being able to memorize Bible verses, but then prayerfully asking the Lord before I get into this, show me how I can apply this to my yeah. life. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. I, I like that. And you hit on something that I had uh, touched on as well. Sometimes we're reading scripture and we don't know what scripture is saying. It just isn't making sense to us. We don't live in first century Israel. We don't live in Babylonian captivity in the sixth century BC. We, it doesn't make sense. And so prayer. And then also finding somebody you can trust in the faith say, hey, I really don't understand this. Can you help me understand what Scripture is saying here? And then just using a filter with what they're saying and comparing that with Scripture, like what you were saying, Drew, earlier, comparing it with Scripture with wise counsel. And so definitely, so there might be times, and especially when it comes to Greek, I, I text a buddy of mine, I text Grant or Sean, like, hey, Grant, help me understand this Greek right here, you know, and he'll send me some stuff. I just bothered Sean the other day. Hey, help me with this. We all need people that we can trust when we don't fully understand something to say, hey, help me understand it. Because if I can understand it, I can apply it. I'm be honest, I don't understand everything in this book. I just don't. I would be God if I said I did. I would lie if I said I did. But I don't understand everything. And that stuff that I don't understand, I have trusted people I can go to and then vet it through a spiritual, scriptural lens as well. Other aspects is when we study, study it from a literal grammatical historical context, a dispensational perspective. In other words, the Bible was written to people, for people in certain situations, in specific situations. Find out what was going on to them then and then figure out what is God's principle to them saying and then how is that similar to us and then how do I apply that principle? Don't over-allegorize scripture. And then, when we get a further, a greater understanding of passages, meditate 
Not like, hmm, stuff like that. But really consider and chew on scripture. And say, okay, this is what God's word says and I'm understanding it. What does this look like in my life practically? Americans don't meditate. I'm not talking about Hinduism and stuff. I'm talking about just really taking time and sit and think about scripture. Have five minutes of silence. Just say, okay, a soft answer turns away wrath. What does that really mean in my personal life? Who do I know that regularly makes me want to yell? My kids. My wife. No, I'm just kidding. You know, but just really chew on it. We don't. We're an instantaneous culture. And to a degree, that's a bad fault. The hardest part to teach scripture is to apply scripture as well. It's easy to know it. It's easy to understand it. But the hardest part is applying it and applying it consistently. And that's why James says, if you want to know who's wise, look at the the characteristics of their life. Are they trying to practically apply the word of God in their life? That's a godly, wise person. You see, this is extremely difficult, especially for them. There's no greater time for them to live their faith actively than in the midst of persecution. Again, I was just talking to somebody the other day. Matter of fact, I was talking to my son, uh, or really talking through Rebecca, because he was talking to Rebecca about it on the phone, and I was really passing off answers. But uh, everything going on in the world today, so much unpeace, so much unrest, so much, oh, what's going to happen? I don't have that fear because I know what scripture says. I know what's going to happen. If anything, it's it's looking like more prophecy is being fulfilled, if you will. I don't want to be one of those, but it does. But there's no greater time for me to live my faith in Christ actively than when injustice is occurring. For it is given unto you not only to believe on him, but to what? Suffer for his name's sake. Philippians one twenty nine. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Church, we got such a great opportunity to live for Christ in a godless world. And too many Christians are oblivious to that. We get so fearful of what's going on. But if we know what's going to happen, then taking wisdom from the Bible and applying it to our life is I don't care what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and everything else. I care to a degree, but I'm not fearful of World War III. I'm not fearful of a one world government or digital currency standing up. You know why? Because scripture says it's going to happen. Revelation 13, I just taught that message as the day approaches. With the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab and everything else, and Edison Alliance. One world government's going to happen. Digital currency's going to happen. It's already happened in 113 countries already pushing for it. These things are going to happen. I don't get fearful. I get excited. And because of that, I have opportunity to allow people what the peace of Christ looks like in turbulent times. Cody? You good? Yeah. <laughs> good. I'm that good. (laughs) But because of the situation in the days we live in and so much turmoil and unrest, that's why we as Christians, we as the church, we need each other. We need each other. Don't overlook the spiritual gift of exhortation if you have it. We need encouragers. We need exhorters. Everybody does. Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but what? Exhorting one another when, as you see the day approaching. Is the day not approaching? What should we do as a church body? We shouldn't be fighting. We should be encouraging each other, loving each other, trying to correct people that are not living in active faith so that they can live in active faith so that they can reach a lost and dying world. You see... Again, wisdom has shown good conversation with works. Again, revealing that it's the mature Christian. He's not talking about a genuine Christian, but the mature Christian has that active faith. But then he does this contrast. Godly wisdom versus ungodly wisdom. So he lists a bunch of traits. Bitter envying, strife, glorying, being boastful, that stuff is earthly, sensual, and it's devilish, and it causes confusion in every evil work. 
And so I was really looking up these words and, and bitter envy, you know, I was like, bitter envy. It's like bitterness, envious. It's like, no, they're together. It's like bitter envy. And they're looking at, okay, what is that? Rivalry. Competition. Oh, that's a hard thing, especially when you have people that both want to be, you know, say, for instance, number ones, bosses, whatever. Man, John the Baptist says he must increase and I must decrease type deal. You can't compete. Nothing good comes out of competing in that sense. Yeah, it's good to run, you know, triathlons and compete for a medal and gold. And that's excellent. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being jealous of what somebody has in competing for that, whether it's money, whether it's cars, whether it's, whether it's affluence, influence, whether it's position or status. That's what James is saying. And again, we said this before. If James is writing this, that means it was a problem then. That means there are some people out there that had this envying going on, that they had strife. This is bringing the idea of sort of like campaigning or uh, being a politician, trying to self-promote. Promote yourself, say, look at me and look at what I've done. And you need to pick me because of what I can do. Uh, glorying, boastful, earthly, and sensual, bringing the idea that these traits are not coming from God. These traits are coming from our flesh, coming from the sinful human nature that we're still bound in. And he says that by fulfilling these, it causes what, what he says, confusion and every evil work. In other words, it causes anarchy and chaos, if you will, within the church. And this is exactly what we see when a church has these characteristics within its body, it turns into a cancer. Sometimes you need to amputate, amputate some things so that you can get the church to heal and get back to the mission of Christ. You see, when he says devilish, it brings the idea of it's a de demonic-like attitude. Not necessarily that it's demonic, but it's a demonic-like attitude. In essence, are these not all secular ways of wisdom, climbing the corporate ladder. How do I gain success? Oh, I need to take his job, so I need to stab him in the back. All these are clear pictures of that demon-like spirit. What was Lucifer's root issue? Pride. I will be like the Most High. First John chapter 2, verse 16 says, The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of God, but it's what? Of the world. And we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 4, while God is on the throne, he is ultimately the king of kings. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter number 4 that Satan is the god of this world right now. People are under, if you will, a spell of Satan. And so it would make sense that worldly wisdom is coming from a demonic-like atmosphere or attitude which is rooted in the father of lies. Satan himself. And so what does James says? He says, do not have these, but this is what your wisdom should look like. P pure, free from defect, peaceable, gentle, moderate, controlled, easy to be entreated, or in other words, submission, submitted to. We got full of mercy, full of good fruits, without partiality, playing no favorites, nepotism, and then without hypocrisy, or in other words, it should be genuine. It should be sincere. Because you may not know my ulterior motive when I'm doing something for you, but guess what God does? So if I'm not sincere and genuine in what I'm doing or what I'm saying, guess what? I'm not giving an account to you. I'm giving an account to God. And at the end of the day, I'd, I'm more fearful of giving an account to him to you. And so the wisdom of God is pure, is peaceful, gentle, without hypocrisy, is genuine. And again, this is a life conduct. This is a regular lifestyle of a Christian. I love what Dr. Tony Evans says. He says, human or worldly wisdom tears others down, but godly wisdom builds up. And I love that. So if you want to know are you being a godly Christian? Are you being an active Christian? Are you being a wise Christian? 
Is your wisdom tearing somebody down or are you building them up? Do you care if they take the spotlight over you? You shouldn't, but it's a struggle. Then James says, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Or in other words, you and I as Christians can produce what's known as practical righteousness. We have no chance of producing positional righteousness. There's a big difference between the two. In other words, positional righteousness is righteousness we receive from placing our faith in Christ and positionally we are placed in the family of God because of his righteousness, not mine. That's positional righteousness. Practical righteousness is righteousness, godly things, a godly conduct, if you will, being right with God in a practical day-to-day life and conduct. And so we can practically live righteousness, but we can't positionally make ourselves righteous, if that makes sense. Positionally, that's done by Christ on the cross through faith. But practically, if we sow in peace and we do this and we try to live by godly wisdom, James says that we can produce practical righteousness. And what does that mean? In the end of the day, when we get to the Bema Seat judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, you and I are going to stand before Jesus Christ and he's going to judge us based on our good works as a Christian. Did I serve Christ with the right motives? Did I do what I should have done? All these other things. There's an opportunity to receive rewards in rulership in the Messianic kingdom and there's an opportunity to lose rewards and lose uh, rulership in the kingdom. So that's what he's talking about here. By living a lifestyle like this, we can create practical righteousness in which we are putting good fruit to our account, in other words. And then at the judgment seat of Christ, we can be rewarded for that. Because what what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? 5 or 6. Lay not up treasure on earth, but what? Treasure in heaven. It's not my idea to work for rewards. Jesus' command to serve him, and then he graciously rewards us. And so we don't serve for rewards. We serve because of what Christ did. And because of our love for that, he graciously rewards us. That's in essence what James is saying. And so I want to close with two pictures. This, anybody know who this is besides Taylor? Because she saw this already. Anybody know who this is? Anybody like Southern gospel music? Nope. Okay. Oh, I, I know him by a different name. Mark Trammell Quartet. I like Southern gospel. It's kind of cheesy, Gaither vocals. So, you, you know, I like Southern gospel music. I didn't want to play it because, you know, copyright, blah, blah, blah. But this, they have a song called Your Walk Talks. Your Walk Talks. It's kind of catchy. Your Walk Talks and Your Talk Talks. It's a perfect picture of what James is talking about. In the chorus, it says, Your Walk Talks, Your Talk Talks. But your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Your behavior towards your neighbor is really how you feel about the Savior, your fellowship. When you exemplify and shine the light of Christ, you know the number in the kingdom will be multiplied. Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. And so it's a pretty catchy tune. I like it. But in essence, that's what we're getting at here. Verse 13, who is a wise man? Let him show out of a good conversation. The wisdom of God, you could talk it all day long, but like most of you already said in the beginning of the class, wisdom is seen more more than it's heard. And at the end of the day, our walk is doing much more talking than our talking does. And so I would wonder, you know, wisdom seen by all, Do people see us with godly wisdom on a regular basis or ungodly wisdom? And if one or the other, I'd encourage you, just pray with God. There's forgiveness, there's reconciliation, there's encouragement, there's discipleship, whatever the case is. Now, when we're talking about, in this last picture I'm about to show, and I'm going to close. uh, When we're talking about knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, applying it. I don't know why, but I just felt like I was supposed to show this tonight. I want to preface it by saying, by no means am I actually trying to build myself up. Please know that in the onset. I am not trying to say, look at me, pat on my back. 
okay? Because it's more about what Christ has done. Also, I want to say, if you're squeamish, you might not want to look at the picture. But it's a picture of my bad eye. You know, it's, it's not a bad picture. But I had an eye issue, okay? So Wednesday, I, you know, asked for prayer for my eye. Rebecca hit me. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But it got really, really bad. Every morning I'm waking up, my eyes sealed shut. I got to clean it off. It hurts so much just to even touch my eyelid. It got to the point to where my eye was shutting completely. And I can only use one eye. And I'm studying about this that I'm going through. And it's like, oh, it could take up to eight weeks. It could, it shouldn't, but there might be permanent damage. I might lose my vision. I look bad. I was telling Rebecca, I was like, we need to find an eye patch, right? I said, I'm going to rock an eye patch. I think they make some cool ones, you know, and and we were going to go to Walgreens and get one. I even came up with a cool pirate name. I was going to be Daniel the Longbeard, you know, back when I had a long beard. But it got to a point, knowledge, understanding, wisdom. Again, this is not about me, but I just want to show this practically in my life because we talked about what does it look like practically in yours. I came to a point, I knew what scripture says. I knew that I'm going to have trials in life. I'm not promised health, wealth, and everything else. There's going to be times of sickness, right? So I was like, okay. I understand if this becomes permanent and I lose vision. Yeah, I was taking it to the extreme. But if I lose vision, okay. I was like, you know what? God, if you're going to have me walk around the rest of my life looking like this guy, I mean, I don't know how many people seen Goonies before, but this is like sloth off the Goonies to me. But I was like, if you want me to do this the rest of my life, I'm fine with it. I'm fine. And I really, truly meant it in my soul. It's that if, if I never get my eyesight back, I'm good. It wasn't a day later I woke up, I could open my eye almost perfectly fine. And today there's no issue whatsoever. It's just tiny, but feels perfect. I can rub it. I can move it. There is no pain. Even just blowing on it, it was so painful. And I just bring this up to say, I knew what God's word says about going through trials and that, you know, we might go through bouts of health and stuff like that. And I understood and discerned it. But then I had to apply it to my life. We could talk about it all day long. But am I going to apply it to my life? And I was like, God, you call me to look like this the rest of my life, I feel sorry for Rebecca, but I'm okay. I don't have to look at myself. And I kid you not, the next day is like, I felt so much better. And I don't know if it's God's healing me. I want to chalk it up to God healing me. Chalk it up because God just saw that I was okay with it, whatever God's will was. That's what it looked practically in my life. And I asked you guys earlier, what does it look practically in your life to have knowledge, understanding, and then applying wisdom. And so again, this isn't a me thing. This is just something recently that I was thinking about tonight. Like, what did it look practically in my life in a trial that I was going through? And I just thank God that he was able to go ahead and give me peace through a lot of trials I went through to say, you know what? Whatever it is, yeah, I'm still going to serve you, follow you, love you. And uh, that's what it looked like in my life recently. I would encourage you just this week, think about in your life, what does knowledge, understanding, and wisdom look like practically in your life? We can know all there is to know about the Bible. We can understand and teach college classes on the Bible but if we don't know how to apply it to our life or we just intentionally don't, God says we're not wise. We can go around fooling everybody and masquerading all day long. We have to apply scripture to our life. Doesn't matter if you're dispersed, persecuted Christian, or if you got an eye infection. It doesn't matter. 
let God be God. You know, I'm going to trust him through it. And so, like I said, I encourage you guys to take time throughout this week, see about what that looks like in your own personal life. And then, Lord willing, I do believe that we can finish James in four weeks. So how many people, I'm curious, show of hands, how many people want to finish James or how many people want to break off and take a break? Show of hands, who wants to finish? Who wants to take a break? Hey, you don't want to raise your hands. Okay, all right. Well, we'll finish James and and, uh, after James, what I've been praying about is I want to get more into a group discussion much more and uh, so I'll be praying about maybe a, a video or, or a study we can do together or something like when we did our fostering community uh, discussion. That was great. So so that's James chapter 3, 13 through 18 at least, you know, according to my studies and what I truly believe the Word of God says. So like I always ask, are there any comments, critiques, concerns, or anything you would like to bring up before we close? No? I'm still just thinking that your mom did the breaks on Yes, my mom did the brakes. She's a grease monkey too. She does a lot of. My mom, she is sweet. No, asked me that when I was a kid growing up, but no, she's been sweet all the time. Ah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, exactly. Now, our job is to go ahead and let people know about the love of Christ. And so, let's go out there and do it. So, amen. All right, we'll pray. God, I thank you for this evening and, again, for the letter of James. And Lord, I pray the Spirit does the work in in each of our lives this evening and this coming week allows us to focus on just uh, different aspects of our life. And and we thank you for their forgiveness when we do slip up and we stumble. But Lord, I thank you so much that our salvation and security is predicated on what you've done and not on what I do. So we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.